Assalamu alaikum and welcome to this episode of the Mindful Muslim podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by Sumeya, an amazing therapist who shares her experience with us and talks about her journey into starting the Healed Sister Academy. Inshallah, you find this a useful episode. Assalamu alaikum, Sumia. Thank you so much for joining me. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Amazing. Um, so welcome to the Mindful Muslim podcast. I guess for our viewers and our listeners, it would be amazing if we could just start about introducing you a little bit. So feel free to let us know who you are. Sure. So my name is Sumeya. I'm French Moroccan and I'm the founder of the Healed Sister Academy. I've been coaching and specializing in personal development for the past few years, alhamdulillah. I work with Muslim women and I help them cultivate a better relationship with themselves, basically. Beautiful. Um, such a lovely sort of way to put everything in a nutshell. Um, so can you tell us more about the academy that you started, how it all came about and really, I guess, what the core idea is behind it? Of course. So when I was doing market research before launching, I realized there's no such thing as the Healed Sister Academy for Muslim women. So it's one of the first online course that is, if I can say so, healing for the dummies, <laughs> if you can say. It's the one-on-one, -on -one, like, how can I heal from my past wounds to become a better version of myself, which is something that we hear a lot, but without compromising my Muslim values, my Islamic values. And I felt like something like that was missing in the industry of personal development, but also of psychology and, and coaching. So I made sure that when I started coaching, this was one of my main goals to create a platform where women can, can, could get into self-healing. And as Muslims, we know that there's no such thing as self-healing, really. We heal through the mercy of Allah Azawajal. Um, but I wanted to create a place where we could get the knowledge on where do I go from pain in order to become a version of myself that is more content and fulfilled in this life. Amazing, amazing. I guess um, the next easy question is how can sisters enroll? Uh, if uh, you know someone's listening now or, or watching us and, and is interested or it sparks something inside of them. So we will be opening the doors in the next few weeks, inshallah, by the end of 2022. And then I'm planning on just keeping the doors open because I want it to be accessible whenever someone finds it and thinks it's for them, then we'll just have it open for the rest of the year, inshallah. Okay, and in terms of uh, the actual enrollment process, you explained that it's a website and you just go on there. Are there any kind of payments required or any kind of, how does that work? Yes, so the academy does imply a fee. I don't believe in, in coaching efficiently without the client having to put some sort of effort behind it because I've done both. I've done a lot of giving out scholarships. I've done a lot of free coaching and I could notice that there was a huge difference between someone who was investing in themselves financially and someone who wasn't. When you don't invest in yourself, there's a lack of commitment, unfortunately. And as a client myself, 
of a lot of mentors and coaches, I do show up when I pay for my coaches and for my courses. So there is a fee involved, um, but we do have payment plans in order for it to be accessible to as many people as possible. Amazing. I think that's that's really, really good to hear. Um, uh, I guess let's take a few steps back and, and try to understand maybe what inspired you to, to become a life coach in the first place. Were you doing maybe other work before? I was lost, <laughs> if you can say so. I was completely lost. Um, becoming a coach for me came from a place of reaching rock bottom, losing myself, not knowing what I was meant to do in this life, losing myself in my spirituality a lot as well. Uh, and stepping away from it completely for a couple of years um, and feeling like I didn't have the guidance and I didn't have the support that I needed in that time, a lot of what I would hear and a lot of what my clients hear sounds like, be patient, um, it will be okay. Things that are not helping at all. I needed more than that. I needed practical tools. I needed to understand what was going on in my head and it took a while to find that. And when I found it, it was an evidence for me that I wanted to make that accessible for other women as well. I guess, uh, are, are there any moments uh, for you that really kind of, you know, triggered that interest or any people that you can remember and recall now, any memories that you want to share with us that really kind of, you know, brought you along that journey? Absolutely. And I'm not proud of this example because, well, it's, it's Tony Robbins, basically. And I'm not a fan of him as much as I used to at the beginning, but I've had, I have had his book in my Kindle for years, Awaken the Giant Within. And then when I reached rock bottom and I, I didn't have a place to stay, I had no means of going anywhere financially. I was away from my daughter for a few months. Everything was going wrong. I didn't have a job. My family was not talking to me anymore. I was in the process of getting divorced. I pulled out his book from the library and I started reading it and it clicked, it clicked within me that I needed to change everything. And this book was the beginning of this journey. And now, Alhamdulillah, I've worked with Muslim practitioners more than non-Muslim one. And it makes a difference to do that. And I think if someone is considering getting help, they should definitely go to someone who share the same faith of them. But for me, the first person that I came across in the field of coaching was Tony Robbins. And everything that he was saying in that book was really, it, it shook me to the core because he's very aggressive in his way of teaching people to change their life, which is what I needed at the time, some tough love. Wow, um, it sounds amazing. Um... Uh, is there anything else you wanted you wanted to share about about your journey? Because you've already delved loads into what your life was like at the time. Um, what was those? What were those first few steps that you that you took? I'm I'm really interested if you're happy to share. Of course. So, what surprised me the most was that I changed a lot of things in a very short amount of time. So, like I told you, I was really lost. So I was indulging in a lot of negative coping mechanisms without going into the details, but there were addictions and there were patterns that really I should not have been doing at all. But Alhamdulillah, when people come to me and they are in that stage where they are reaching rock bottom and they are also involved in a lot of sinning and negative things, they think that it's going to take them ages to change. But the reality is that it doesn't have to. 
Because when you think that way, you are implying that Allah cannot help you and we should never think that way as Muslims. Allah is capable of making anything happen and he can make it happen in the amount of time that he desires it to happen. As long as you have the intention to change, for me it only took three months to get myself back on my feet, to find my way, to find my purpose, to get a place, to get a job. It was incredible. People didn't even believe it. Everyone was telling me that it was going to be difficult, but it wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. Alhamdulillah. It sounds like you're sort of... Um journey was lots of self-education and self-healing let's say um but then also encompassing that with the spiritual side do you think do you think that kind of is is accurate completely so when i started coaching at first i was coaching both non-muslims and muslims and i realized if i don't have the spiritual component in my tools and in the sessions there's not much that i can do to help this person so it clicked it occurred to me that healing is not possible without the help of Allah, but also without committing to improving yourself spiritually. It's not possible. So if anyone is thinking, I'm going to focus on like making money, or I'm going to focus on becoming the best version of myself outside of my spirituality, as a Muslim, you're not going to go anywhere with that mentality. Um, I guess I, I want to kind of pick up on the healing aspect. Um, you might want to share, you know, personally how it was for you or just in terms of your work that you've done um, and what you've seen in other people. I mean, is there a thing called what does it mean to be healed? You know, it does healing just stop at some place? Um, yeah, it would be really good if you could talk to us about that. So that's a really good question, actually, because I'm of those people who don't believe that there's full healing in this life. Because the way I see it, the real wound that happened to us is the one that happened when we were separated from Allah and put into this world. And complete healing will only happen when we're back and we're close to him. That's what I think. Now, we use the word healing a lot, and, and that's the name of the academy as well. What I really mean by the healed sister or, or the healing process is getting to a place where whatever happens to you, you feel like you're capable of overcoming it with the help of Allah and having that contentment, that peace within, and that fulfillment that this life is just a test. That, that's what it is, I think. And I always say, if I could just have one session with people, I don't need a program of like a whole year. If in one session you can understand what this life is about, you can completely reframe it and not see it as something that's supposed to be easy, of something that's supposed to give you what you want. Sometimes people come to me and they tell me, I've been spiritual, I've been making dua, but I'm not getting the answers to my duas. And I'm like, the test is for you to be patient, maybe. This life is not about, it's not Amazon Prime, basically. You don't order something and get it. You work on yourself. You challenge your nafs, your ego. That's what this life is supposed to be about, because we're going somewhere else. It's not the end destination. So healing is not about reaching a place where you're happy. I don't believe in this constant happiness that we tend to chase. It's not about feeling like you've accomplished it all and like you, your wounds are completely uh, worked on and fixed. It's not that. It's more a state of contentment and inner peace and trust in Allah. Trust that he's got you. He's got your back and you're not alone in this life. That's amazing. Um... I guess what I'm what I'm interested in next is is hearing a little bit more about um, uh, 
Uh, I guess I didn't ask you dates as well. It would be great if you did let us know when you started your journey and then when you actually launched the academy and how long that period has been and then maybe delve into what kind of um, reoccurring or common themes have come up for women that have that have come to to contact you. Sure. So I've been coaching for three three years on a one-on-one basis and I first started with a group coaching after the one-on-one coaching. So I had a group of women. Uh, we were 20, 20 women and I did that twice and it was amazing. It was a very transformational experience because on top of having access to the tools, they had access to a community. And that when you're working on yourself, especially in the in the Muslim community, it, it makes a difference because a lot of women feel isolated and they feel like they're being stigmatized in their surroundings. So having a group of women who were doing the same kind of work and who were struggling with similar things was really helpful. So first it was one-on-one coaching, then group coaching. And then when I tested the program for two years and a half, I launched it in September this year uh, through an online course platform. So now we've been doing the the academy for six months and we have a lot of good reviews and feedback, alhamdulillah. Because I'm still there with people, it's not like a full-on autonomous practice. I'm doing two monthly uh, Q&A sessions live so that they can ask me questions about the content of the program but also the problems that they encounter while trying to implement the tools in their lives. I guess the second part of my question was about common struggles so if we can delve into that are there uh, common struggles that you can that you can t- talk to us about I know it's obviously a quite personal and people will have different lots of different things but is, are there any that have that you can kind of categorize a little bit? Yeah, completely. After three years of coaching, there are things that keep on coming back. I feel like I have two main profiles of women that I work with. There's the woman who is very shy and lacks confidence and she lacks boundaries a lot. She says yes to everything. Um, She struggles to speak up for herself when something unjust is done to her. She's giving. She gives and gives and gives and gives, but she's building up that resentment within her that is slowly killing her and that is affecting her relationships as well because that might show up in her snapping out at her kids or her husband or not wanting to show up at work and so on and so forth. That's one profile. And then on the other hand, you have the opposite. You have the woman who looks confident. She looks very strong and sometimes that can be intimidating for the people around her. She's working too hard. She's a work a, a workaholic And she struggles to make time for the people around her and herself. So she tends to say no very easily. But the reality is that these two profiles have something in common, is that they don't value themselves. Both of those. Even if the second one looks confident, she actually has put up a mask in front of her face because she's been hurt in the past. And she thinks that showing up that way, like the strong woman, is going to protect her from future negative experiences but deep down these two women lack confidence and they have an unhealthy self-esteem and all they want to be doing really is taking care of themselves but they have no idea how to do that mm-hmm. um having had a, a a look at some of your work already um i know that you encourage self-love so what does that mean on your course what does that mean for you know uh the people that join your course so It's not what people think it is. 
it's not self-love to the point where you become arrogant and you just show up neglecting everyone else around you. It's not that at all. Behind the notion of self-love, there's acceptance, acceptance of who you are, of your temperament, your personality, your weaknesses, your strength. So there's acceptance of who Allah has made you to be, basically. Uh, there's respect, respect of yourself, respect of your body, your soul, your mind, recognizing that all of this is a blessing from Allah and that it needs to be taken care of. And there's acceptance as well of what happened to you in the past. That's where the healing part comes in. A lot of people struggle to surrender to Allah's decree. And I think a part of self-love is also saying, I trust myself and I trust Allah and I trust that everything that happened to me happened for a reason. Even if I don't know what that reason is, I don't need to know. But what I can do is ask myself, what did I learn from it? And how do I want to use that to better my character, to better myself as a Muslim in this life? And self-love is finding the balance between believing in Allah so much that you trust that you deserve to have good thing in this life. I think that's the key point that people get confused about. And what they tend to do is they reach a level of despair that is actually a sin in Islam. You should not despair in Islam. You shouldn't despair of his mercy. You shouldn't despair of his love. We should be people of positive attitude in this life as Muslims. So it's all about understanding that loving yourself is not going to stop you from being a good slave. As long as you understand that his love and your love to him is more important to, than anything. You need to love him more than you love anything else. And you need to love yourself through his love for, for you, basically, if that makes sense. SubhanAllah, everything you're saying is so profound and I feel like we could go so much deeper and I want to pick your brain a little bit more because <laughs> um, um, everything you said is just so powerful and I just think, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little bit overwhelmed in terms of there was lots of bits that you said that to me it was feeling like if I wanted to do this work, again, it does feel like would it take a really long time? Mm. It, it, it would depend on you and your intentions and your commitment. So, for example, the, the Hill Sister Academy is accessible for six months and a lot of women come into it and they think that's never going to be enough. But I'm like, how much do you want this change to happen? You don't have to consume the whole course because the course has more than 25 videos and most of them are one hour long. You don't have to go through the whole content. All you have to do is commit to implementing one change at a, at a time. And that in itself will change your relationship to yourself. It will change your relationship to Allah. It will change your daily habits. You need to trust in him to make that change happen in you. That's having tawakkul, certainty that he will make things happen for you. But you need to also do the work. Allah will not change the condition of people if they don't take a step forward and change it themselves, right? So we need to be people of being proactive. Absolutely. Um, a little bit of what you touched on already was um, trauma and I guess that that is linked to um, maybe things that happened in the past when we were children so how how do you sort of um, connect the trauma to the inner child can you explain that a little bit more in terms of your course sure 
So when it comes to trauma, I like the approach of Dr. Gabor Matei, who does amazing work in that field. And what he says basically is that trauma is not the event itself. So it's not the intensity of the event. It's not how extreme something is. It's how you react to it. Which, when I heard that the first time, blew my mind. Because a lot of people will think that trauma is abuse, it's cases of extreme violence, it's uh, sexual abuse and things like that. It's really these big words that we don't identify with if we had a normal childhood. The reality is that the trauma and its consequences will not be defined by the event, but it will be defined by how sensible you were to it and how much it impacted you. Right, and, and it's all very, very subjective. Absolutely. So nowadays we talk a lot about highly sensitive people. I identify as a HSP. I am more sensitive than most people. 30% of the population internationally is HSP. It's highly sensitive. A highly sensitive person, for example, will react completely differently to abuse than another person would react to abuse. Maybe someone will be more resilient. And if we remove the whole concept of abuse, a child not having their parents in the room, that doesn't sound like trauma, right? For a sensitive child, it might be traumatic. That's why you have kids who don't react at all to their mom leaving the room and you have kids who will react and who will um, get into a tantrum, for example. We are all different and the way that we react to trauma is, is different from person to person. Now, when it comes to inner child work, Inner child work is this idea that psychologists came up with uh, that we all have a child within us and that this child tends to come out in the present when we are adults because some things happen in the past that we have not addressed. And these could be repressed emotions. It could be traumatic events that we haven't healed. It could be having a parent that was not there and therefore what we so commonly call daddy issues, a woman will be attracted to a man who's emotionally unavailable or physically unavailable because her father was not present at home and so on and so forth. So these things tend to come from childhood. That's why when I came across this myself, as a woman who was in pain and who was struggling, it all made sense to me that a lot of the things that I was doing wrong in the present moment were due to problems that I encountered when I was younger. But at the time, it all seemed like it was normal. My childhood felt normal to me because I didn't know anything else, right? And a lot of my clients come to me and they will describe their childhood and they will say, it was pretty basic. But then when you dig deeper, a lot of things happened that were traumatic for them. And that shows up in the present. It shows up in them being in relationship with people that they should not be in relationship with. It showed, them, it showed up with them not setting boundaries, not taking care of the, themselves, have, having a very negative inner dialogue and things like that. Yes, yes. I think it's just so profound, everything you said there in terms of um, how different people will react to different events, whether we label them as traumatic or not. You know, for, for you, something might be very traumatic that I might think, oh, that's not traumatic at all, you know? It's just about different personalities and... Ex and yeah, accepting yourself as well. I think that really helps with the whole acceptance of everything that's happened and everything that's happening now and maybe your reactions or certain triggers that you have. So I can imagine that 
for anybody, for a lot of people, it would be amazing work to, to be able to do on yourself. Um, can you, that leads me nicely onto, I guess, the most profound work that you think you've done as a life coach so far. Are there any kind of uh, moments that you'd like to share with us or? There's a lot, actually. <laughs> so I love when someone has a breakthrough related to their relationship with Allah while working with me. So I can remember at the beginning of this year, there was a sister who had been, she, she'd gone through spiritual abuse, unfortunately, may Allah protect her. And uh, because of that, she had been struggling to make dua and to just talk to Allah on a daily basis. And it had been months since she had felt like she was close to him. So on our first conversation, I listened to her. And at the end, I asked her, after this call, I want you to write a letter to Allah. And she went on and she did. And she sent me a message after that. And she told me, I have never cried this much in my life. I felt like this is the conversation that I had needed this whole time, but that I was holding on to because of everything that happened. You know, you start building up stories in your head, if, especially if you go through spiritual abuse, unfortunately. It really takes a toll on your faith. And that in itself, that small exercise, has really impacted her relationship with her creator very fast. And that's just one letter, and it can change everything. And then suddenly you find yourself feeling closer to him. And, and even in your worship daily, after that event everything goes better, right? So this was one of the things that I remember. And then there's many more examples, but I don't want to take 20 minutes on just this question. No, that's amazing. Um, I guess I, I, I do want to know, can you break down spiritual abuse a little bit for us? Is that kind of using, I don't know, scripture negatively? Or what, what do you mean by that? It could be that, yes. So usually spiritual abuse will involve one person in a position of power who will use religion, no matter what religion it is, in order to um, reach a goal that is of a mean intention or of a bad intention or to have someone do something that they shouldn't be doing or things like that, using religion as the reason that this person should be obeying them. So it happens way more than we think, unfortunately, especially in our communities. Um, and it's something that we should be on the lookout for, especially for our kids, because it's very common to let your kids go to the madrasa every day. But do you really know the person who's teaching them? You know, so for this sister in particular, she was struggling uh, with stress and anxiety. So her parents called someone to help her out using the Quran. Um, he was a sheikh and... They, when someone is helping you out, you really develop a close and intimate relationship with that person, especially if no one has supported you in the past and you felt like you had never had this safe space before. So it's it's very damaging to both your self-esteem and your spirituality and your relationship to God because then you start fearing that everything that has to do with religion is bad and damaging to me, so I should stay away from it. Um. I guess that leads me quite nicely on to that, it, that everything you've spoken about already, it sounds like you're in a pretty emotionally demanding field. Uh, you know, life coaches and, and, and people that sit down with other people and listen to, to what's going on. How is it that you look after your own mental well-being, your emotional well-being? Is it a daily thing for you? Absolutely, yeah. The, the first thing that I do is I recognize that I, I have limits myself. 
So that means when I feel like I can't handle a case, uh, a profile, I will be honest about it and I won't take it in. So I'm not a trauma therapist, but I do have recommendations that I can give to that person in terms of colleagues who can help them. That's the first thing. So having these sort of boundaries with myself, knowing what I'm capable of taking on and what I'm not capable of taking on is very important. And then I use the tools that I, I teach to people. I journal every day almost. I meditate and I do a lot of breath work. And if I don't do these things, I become crazy. Um, and then, of course, my spirituality is at the center of uh, my daily rituals. So a lot of dhikr, dhikr really helps and dua. So people talk to me and I talk to Allah, basically. <laughs> so yeah, alhamdulillah. And I, I love traveling and I, I have a weakness for stand-up comedy as well. So online, people see this very serious aspect of me and the side of me that is very professional and talks a lot about dark things and they assume that I'm like that all the time but I'm actually quite crazy <laughs> in my real life so I do love stand-up comedy I love being active and going out and doing things with my daughter uh, so alhamdulillah for that that's very important amazing uh, it's good to hear definitely I think for especially people that may have already seen you on on your platform um you know, a little bit more about who you are as a person and sort of a holistic view rather than just, you know, what they see. Um, I know that you've got a YouTube video in particular where you mentioned 10 tips um, that you wish you'd known before you got married. Can you share some of those with us really quickly on here? Um, I think that might be really useful for, for viewers. Of course, that that's the video that has the most views, I think, and that was the that was shared the most. So definitely, I, I recognize that I made a lot of mistakes when choosing a partner for myself. And so one of the things that I mentioned is the intention. I think that was the first thing. Being intentional and, and asking yourself, why do you want to get married? Is it because your parents are pressuring you? Or is it really because you feel like you're ready emotionally to get into something like marriage? Uh, the second thing I think was, do you know yourself enough? Because if you don't, how are you going to find someone who's compatible with you? There are a lot of things to consider, like your temperament, your spirituality, like how do you want to be practicing? How are you practicing right now and how you want to be practicing in the future so that you can ask these questions to the person you're talking to, for example. Do you love yourself enough? So coming back on the self-love thing, um, a lot of the women who end up divorced Something happened at some point, they did not value themselves, therefore they did not deserve, they did not think that they deserved a righteous spouse. And so that's why I think it's really important to love yourself enough before you get into that journey of seeking someone and searching for the, the, the one, so that you don't choose someone from a place of like, this is the only thing that I deserve. I can't get anything better than that right now. I'm not good enough for this, right? And that's how women end up with really abusive partners, for example, because they think that that's the only thing that's out there for them. Uh, so loving yourself, um, knowing yourself enough, setting strong intentions, and also understanding that if you come from an environment that was a, an environment that had a lot of negative male figures, Understanding that this is not the ultimate reality, meaning it's not because your father or your brother were abusive that every man out there is abusive. Abusive, So you need to challenge your worldview 
And you need to work on believing that there are good people out there. There are good men out there, which is something that a lot of women struggle to believe. And what I say all the time is, you don't, you don't believe what you see. You see what you believe. Your belief will completely impact your experience of life. You need to believe that there are good men out there to meet them. Because when a good man comes to you, if you don't believe that it's possible for him to be that good, you're going to sabotage the relationship or the courting process or whatever you call it. So that's why we see a lot of situations where sisters are in a good marriage and they find it boring when really, really it's healthy because they're used to chaos and trauma and abuse. They find a good guy boring. They just need to train themselves to be in a, in a good relationship. So those were some of the points. I think I spoke also about um, prioritizing your deen, so your spirituality over everything, and seeking help, but help from wise people. So considering doing um, premarital counseling, which is something that the Christians do a lot, and that is slowly developing in our communities as well. I think that's an amazing idea. Just having someone neutral ask the both of you questions to make sure that you're compatible. And knowing about your attachment style was one of those as well. I've, I've said almost everything. Sorry, I'm just throwing no, that No, that's great. You. No, that's that's really useful. I'm sure that um, viewers and listeners will be able to watch that YouTube video anyway and, and, and get some more details on that. Um, I guess you did touch upon divorce a little bit there. And I think, uh, you know, many sisters... I would say we maybe want to try to avoid divorce, even though they are in a relationship that's very difficult um, and, and potentially toxic. There might be children involved. There might be so many things that are going through their head, sort of preventing them from starting the divorce process. I mean, I guess being through that yourself, um, can you share your thoughts on, on this whole idea of being stuck uh, for you know years sometimes? I think the first thing that we should acknowledge is that those fears are natural and and they are valid fears, especially if you grew up in, in a household where your parents were also not in a healthy relationship, but they would stick together because of people's judgment or because divorce was the worst thing that could ever happen. Uh, my parents used to joke about how... Uh, they used to say, I'm trying to translate from French to English. Uh, but there was a comedian who made that joke that the only way the marriage would end was if one of them killed the other. And that was better than divorce. So th these were the, the kind of jokes that would make my parents laugh. Because at the time, the mentality was divorce is not on the table at all. It's not an option. No matter what, it's not an option. So... As a kid, if you grow up in that environment and you hear that all the time, th that's going to be one of your core beliefs that no matter what happens, I should never get a divorce. Um, but the thing is, it's not as hard as we make it to be. I'm not going to diminish the pain and the trauma that comes with divorce and the grief as well that comes with it. But it's not as bad as we make it to be. And the proof of that is that there's hundreds of women who get divorced every day and every year and who are completely fine after and who are actually better off being by themselves than actually being in the toxic relationships because what you need to think about is the consequences of you being stuck in a marriage that's not working out 
it's going to have consequences on your spirituality. And people cannot deny that. It's really hard to be grateful to Allah when you are in a marriage that is hurting you emotionally, mentally, sometimes even physically. It's going to affect your spirituality. Um, it's going to affect your body because everything that is affecting your mental and emotional health will have consequences on your body. Most of my clients have had some sort of negative impact on their body from their trauma in their marriage, or let's not even call it trauma, but just from the negative experiences that they were having in their marriage. So the longer you stay in that situation, the more you put on yourself these negative consequences and the harder it's going to be to heal them if you you stay too long in that situation, basically. So it's it's better to try your best to fix the marriage if it's possible. That being said, meaning if there's no abuse, because we want to come out of an abusive marriage, no, no matter what is the reason why you're staying, you want to come out of an abusive marriage. So outside of the, the abusive situation, if it's just a matter of you not getting on and things like that, you want to try and fix it as much as possible. However, if you've tried everything and deep down you have this feeling that it's not going to work out and you're just staying for the kids, for example, or something like that, you're not doing a favor to yourself and to your children if there's children involved by staying. You're teaching them that it's better to suffer than actually trust Allah and the fact that he can create something better for you. And that's not something that you want to teach anyone. And you're showing to yourself that you're not worthy of being loved and in a healthy relationship. And that will have an impact on your self-esteem in the long term as well. That's why it's harder to heal from a long, unhealthy marriage than it is from a, a short one. Amazing advice. Um, you also just touched on grief, Zameya, that might come, you know, after a divorce. Can you explain that a little bit and um, how maybe you or other women that you've seen or met um, have dealt with that process and, and being kind of staying strong, I suppose, because I'm not sure whether, again, grief is something that um, we can just get over. Hmm. Yeah, studies have showed that divorce is one of the most traumatic events in an adult's life. So there is that notion that it is like grieving the loss of something. I think there's several losses in the process of getting divorced. The first one is the idea that you had of this union, of this relationship, how you thought it was going to be versus how it actually was. So you have to grieve that. A lot of us, we come into it thinking it's going to be like a Disney movie or a Hollywood rom-com. And so there's a lot of grieving on that side. There's a grief of yourself, who you used to be, who you became in your marriage and who you are now in this process of separation. And of course, there's going to be grieving of this person who's not going to be in your life anymore. Maybe their family, if you used to get on with the family and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of loss in this process. And grief has a few steps as well in the process, which are depression, uh, denial, anger, and then acceptance. Maybe there's, there's one more that I'm forgetting, but it's very similar in the divorce process. So the first thing that we need to do is have 100% of self-compassion for ourselves in that moment. Because what I hear the most in my sessions from divorced women is, I should not be feeling that way. I should be 
getting back on my feet and I should be doing this and that. No, you shouldn't. You're going through something really difficult. Cut yourself some slack. People are really harsh on themselves. So first and foremost, self-compassion. I don't think it's the right time to be strong, to be honest. I'm of the school who thinks it's okay to be weak. And that's a good moment to surrender to Allah as well because we recognize that we are weak and he's powerful. So it's okay to be weak and to seek help. Seek help when it comes to getting food, having the, the kids taken care of by family members, just so that you can recover. People don't understand. Like Sometimes it feels like a truck just drove through you, these kind of emotional events that are very impactful. So take the time to rest, to heal, to be depressed if you need to be depressed. And then get back on your feet. And then work on yourself. Work on changing your limiting beliefs about men, about marriage, about yourself, etc., etc. But do take that time of resting. And that's why in Islam we have the Ida period, 40 days after the divorce of like no going out, isolation, right? It's for a reason. Amazing. I guess uh, that leads me on to whether you think there are enough safe spaces for women to go when they are in need. So I suppose, you know, just thinking about um, women that might be going through the divorce process and lots of other women that are going through anything that might be difficult in their lives. I mean, I don't know if this is a good time to plug any kind of, um, um, you know, people that you've come across or other organizations that you want to mention at all um that would be useful for for any viewers or listeners so i think there's definitely not enough spaces to to answer your question first and then i'll definitely plug someone um unfortunately whether you're going through a divorce or something else as a muslim woman it's very hard to find a safe space to talk but also a place where you'll be given guidelines and, and proper guidance on what to do next. So we, we definitely need more spaces. I was just talking to a colleague and uh, what we hear is that people who are in this field will receive up to 10 messages per day of women who are in despair on social media. So we need more people doing this work and who are Muslim. And we also need more organizations, more physical spaces where people can go without fearing that they're going to be rejected or judged. Um, there is an account that I, I have shared on, on my recommendation highlights on Instagram. It's Sister Therapy, and I think it's 2022, but I'm not sure. So if anyone is interested um, to talk to someone at an affordable price, these sisters are amazing. I use them myself as therapists, and their rates are very low. So it's around 15 pounds for a 30 minute session or something like that. It might not sound like much to talk to someone for 30 minutes, but it can make a huge difference. It really can. So, and I know there are more and more services like that uh, for Muslims dedicated to us. So if you are in a place where you're struggling right now mentally, be on the lookout for these spaces, for these people who are doing this work at a very cheap price and reach out to people. Don't ever lose hope that no one wants to help you or anything like that no help is out there mm -hmm. no absolutely i think that's that's really really helpful um it can be so difficult if you're in the situation yourself to think 
about, you know, where where is the help, first of all, and how would I take the steps to find it? So I, I think uh, that's really amazing. Um, I guess I want to delve a little bit more into Islam in general and ask you about whether you um, can share your knowledge about whether you think Islam actually promotes this healing process and investing in ourselves. Sure. I'm doing Islamic studies at the moment, actually, and... Alhamdulillah, this is something that we talk a lot because my teachers are quite grounded, which is a good thing, and that's why I, I chose them. And what what you learn when you're studying the deen is that the Qur'an, one of the, the attributes of the Qur'an is healing. It, it's shifa, it's healing. So would Allah call the Qur'an healing if we didn't need that, if we didn't need to heal and take care of ourselves or if we didn't need to acknowledge that some part of us was wounded because for healing to happen, there needs to be a wound, right? So there's a recognition here already that the deen is a form of healing, meaning there's something in us that needs to be healed, meaning we need to be doing this work of healing ourselves. So it's acknowledging that, first of all, and getting out of the mentality that says that depression is shameful, that feeling low is a sign of a lack of iman, all of this is nonsense. We need to step out of this. There are prophets who cried for centuries, who were sad, and it was, it's expressed in the Qur'an as well. We, we see stories and expression of emotions in the Qur'an, so why are we repressing emotions in our daily lives as a community? Subhanallah. As a cultural thing, a man cannot cry in front of people. And even my female, my female uh, clients will tell me crying at home was not a thing. Why? Where does that come from? The Prophet ﷺ cried when he lost his children, his sons. He cried openly. And he said, even if I surrender to the decree of Allah the heart still can feel pain. We are human beings. If the, the most perfect human being felt sadness, وسلم, what does it say about us and our level of sadness? He was perfect. We're not perfect, right? So coming to acceptance with our emotions, with our human side, and realizing that Islam is there as a way to heal ourselves through the Qur'an, through the Sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, and through our relationship with Allah So it's good that we see the tools that we have in our religion not as just chores, you know? People pray because they have to pray. Why don't you pray because you want to feel close to God? Because you need that conversation to be happening. Because you need to ask Him for His help. Why don't you make dua in your own words instead of this automatic robotic Arabic dua that you don't even understand? Speak from your heart to Him. Tell Him what you're struggling with instead of asking people. Start with Him. So 100% we, we've been neglecting our the access that we have from our deen and, and the beauty of it when it comes to healing, we've been neglecting that, we've, we're, we've lost that side of it, when really healing cannot happen with it, without it. So that's the first thing that we should be turning towards. Mm, that's lovely. Um, how does, do you think self-care and sort of nourishing our soul strengthen that bond with God? 
And you've already mentioned how you already mentioned the sister from before as well. Writing that letter enabled her to really connect to God, you know, in such a different way. Um, can you explain a little bit more in terms of your knowledge on that and, you know, self-healing and then getting to a point where you are communicating more fluidly and it's more free and you're doing it in your own words, like you just said? Mm. Well, let's start with defining the self-care that we, we mean here. I always say self-care is soul care. So the first thing that I recommend people do is prioritizing their religion in their daily life. And that is self-care in itself. So for example, if you're not praying five times a day or you're delaying your prayers right now, you committing to make that happen, to fulfill that obligation is self-care in my opinion. Rarely I've had clients who came to me and who were doing great in their practice of the religion and who were not taking care of themselves. These two things come together because what you do when you take time off to pray proper, properly, like not just three minutes prayer, I'm talking about a real prayer with focus and intention. When you do that and you commit to making that happen, it already shows that you're good at setting boundaries with yourself and with other people. That means you're good at prioritizing what's important for you. And rarely I've had people come to me and, and be able to fulfill that already. So self-care, in my opinion, is related to how you practice your din in the first place, your din in the first place. So focus on that, for example, do that. And then you'll see that if you can do that, you can take care of your body a bit better. So if you can commit to praying five times a day on time and in a way that's focused and intentional, you can go to the gym three times a week as well. Because you understand that just like your prayer, this will have positive consequences on your health. The prayer has positive consequences on your spiritual health. And then it opens doors to so many blessings in your life as well. Working out will have positive consequences on so much more than just your body, right? And, and then it's like this ripple effect of, okay, if I can commit to setting boundaries with myself and with people to prioritize these things, I'm going to be such a better person. I'm not going to be a bad mother because I take care of myself a bit more by praying on time, by going to the gym, by eating healthier. Sometimes it's even showering once a day. You have mothers out there who do not prioritize that anymore because they see it as a chore because they think I need to be doing something else for someone else right now. And that's my priority. It's not. And they say the same thing for prayer, by the way. It's a whole mindset. Once you understand that taking care of yourself is not a selfish act, this will show up in your spirituality, it'll show up, it'll manifest in all the fields of your life. You'll even be a better wife if you take care of yourself. You'll be a better Muslim. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I think a lot of people and, you know, people that I can think of in my life, myself included, need to hear that this self-care self-love these acts that we that we you know should be doing very regularly is not being arrogant or too much or I don't know selfish in any way I think this is the issue where you feel like you should be doing something for somebody else and you're in that caring nurturing role and maybe you've seen growing up other women in your life doing this sort of sacrificing type situation where they're always giving 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 it can be hard to change your mentality about taking care of yourself 
to be the best that you can be for everybody around you. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add or advice that you wanted to give with regards to that or any kind of um, women that you've worked with that you could share a story or anything with us? I think what's important to, to add is that we have responsibilities towards Allah when it comes to our body, our mind and our soul. And by giving up on those responsibilities, you're not doing yourself a favor and you will be asked about these things on the day of judgment. And when I say that to my clients, it really leads them to having a breakthrough of like, it's true, I've been neglecting myself so much. And for what? Because when these women, these mothers or sisters or daughters neglect their needs, and we're talking about primal needs, you know, like sitting and eating a proper meal instead of running all the time to serve people, for example, sleeping a good amount of time so that they can wake up for fajr and things like that. When they neglect these needs, they become ill. At 30, they look like they're 50. And they have so many chronic illnesses and they can't take care of anyone anymore. And the saddest times, sometimes what happens is that no one is there to take care of them the way that they were taking care of other people. And this is where heartbreak happens because all of that time I gave everything to everyone and today no one is able to repay me. So take care of yourself first. Fill your cup first, right? That's what they say. So that you're able to pour onto many more cups after. I know it's a silly metaphor, but it, it's just very simple to understand. You're not going to be able to give less if you give more to yourself. Thank you, Somay. It really has been such an eye-opener, um, such amazing wisdom that you've shared with me and with the viewers, I'm sure, and the listeners. Is there anything sort of before we we wrap up and end that you wanted to say or share, anything that um, maybe that I should have asked that I didn't? Well, you've asked amazing questions, alhamdulillah, and Allah mubarak. But one thing that I needed to hear more in my life, especially when I was younger, um, and that I think anyone might benefit from is knowing that Allah is with us, Allah loves us and he wants the best for us and he's not just after us to punish us or anything like that even though we've been taught otherwise. So if you thrive for his pleasure and his closeness, do it knowing that he loves you, not fearing him. There needs to be a balance of both things but always remind yourself that you're loved especially on the days where you don't feel worthy of it. SubhanAllah, that's amazing. Thank you so much for ending on such a beautiful note. Um, and uh, Jazakallah khair for joining me on the Mindful Muslim podcast. Assalamu alaikum. Jazakallah khair for watching and listening to this episode of the Mindful Muslim podcast with me and Sumeya. I will see you on the next one.